Good morning, everyone. Good to open up God's Word with you today. Please find Romans chapter 5 in your Bibles. Romans chapter 5. So when you ask people the question, what question would you ask God if you could ask Him anything? Number one answer is always, why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's interesting what happens to us when suffering comes to us. We automatically want to do an intruder lockdown on it. We want to get it arrested as soon as possible. We want to exterminate it. We want to get it out of our life, right? We hate suffering. But here's what Christians learn. This is what we're going to see today. God brings good out of suffering. We started on this idea last week, and we're going to continue to look at why we rejoice in suffering. It's a counterintuitive thing, I know, why we rejoice in it. Suffering, we saw, produces endurance, proven character, hope, and as we will see even more today, it gives assurance. It gives assurance that we truly belong to Christ. It gives assurance that God is at work in our lives, and it comforts us who so easily get discouraged in suffering. And so, the idea here today is that God assures us through suffering so that we would put all of our hope in him. And so open your Bibles again to Romans 5, and if you're able, I want you to stand with me. At, at Grace, we actually stand to read the Bible. It's not the only way to read the Bible in public, but I think it calls us attention to the fact that this is the Word of God. This is perfect. This is amazing. This is true. So I'm going to read Romans 5, 1 through 11, as I have the last few weeks. We're going to only focus on really one verse today, though, verse 5, okay? Here we go. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And Lord, I pray that you'd have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking at these first 11 verses in Romans 5. We've seen some amazing reasons to rejoice in Christ in these first 11 verses. And it's because God chose us and justified us 
by faith in Christ. So because of God's grace, we can rejoice in Christ. And so we celebrate salvation's benefits really in these first 11 verses of Romans 5. First reason to rejoice, we have peace with God. Uh, We've been declared righteous by God. We have ongoing, eternal peace with God, no longer his enemies. Second reason, we have access to grace. We have an introduction into God's presence. We have free admittance to his throne. It's like you have the access code. Third reason, hope of God's glory, guaranteed future glory. Those are the three things we have seen already. We have this past, eternal peace, and it keeps going. We have present access to God's grace, and then a future hope of glory. And then a fourth reason to rejoice, which we began to look at last week, is suffering. Suffering is a reason to rejoice. We, we rejoice not because we're, we're weird and crazy and we really like to suffer, but because God uses suffering to grow us in Christ. I know during the Olympics there were all these commercials on and there was one about the cable TV commercial where like people are running into walls and doors and you know their I don't know they get feet are getting crushed by something and they're like cheering about it. We're not that, okay? We're not masochists who like love to suffer. We rejoice in sufferings because of what the suffering produces. People have seen this from from Christ. Uh, they see what Jesus does in their life. I think of John Bunyan. John Bunyan was an English preacher. He was the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And from 1660 to 1672, for 12 years, he spent all that time in Bedford Jail. And he was there because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. In fact, they said, you can go free if you will just stop preaching the gospel. And what happened was, He experienced not only the pain of jail for those 12 years, but he experienced the the painful effects upon his own heart and his family, his wife and four kids. When he went into that jail, he had a 10-year-old daughter named Mary who was blind. His his wife was watching and caring for the kids all those years, and here's what he said. He said, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. But here is what Bunyan found. He found hope in God through suffering, and he found hope and endurance and character that he would not have experienced any other way. He learned the meaning of Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I would learn your statutes, O Lord. Basically, it was good that I was afflicted so I could get to know you. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Goodness of God. And we say, you know, God is good. It's hard to say it when you're suffering. Here's the subtitle of his book, The Goodness of God, Assurance of Purpose, in the midst of suffering. And here's one thing that he says in that book. He says, you may be looking less for answers than for hope. 
When a child has fallen off a bicycle, her father doesn't give a lecture about nerve endings, skin tissue, and the role of blood as it is pumped by the heart. He reassures the child that he is there for her and everything will be okay. So for you, the answer may simply be, God really does love me. That could be the same for you today. You're not looking for all the answers to why you're suffering, but you need assurance to know that God loves you. And this, this verse, as, as I mean, the whole Bible is screaming that message to us. And it could be that you have, been going, you have gone through something like abuse or desertion uh, or some debilitating disease or a lost loved one that has you know, devastated your heart. And so for you, suffering isn't theoretical. Suffering isn't philosophical. It is intensely personal. And I want you to know today, God doesn't minimize your suffering. God doesn't say, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. What God does is he personally walks you through it. He, he literally carries you through it, and, and he is comforting you all the way, all the way through it. The pain that you're in, in, that you're in the middle of right now, for the believer, there is this hope that God is with you and he will never leave you. So that is why when you get to verse, when you get to verse 3 even where it says we rejoice in our sufferings. It's intensely personal. It would be wicked for us to rejoice in other people's sufferings. No, we weep with those who weep. But we rejoice in our sufferings. And that rejoicing is, is a present tense It's we keep on rejoicing in every consequence of the fall. You could say it like this. The Christian life equals suffering. The Christian life equals suffering. This is kind of a weird aside, but I was thinking this this morning. If if any of you were here when I was preaching through Matthew years ago, and we were going verse by verse through Matthew, we get to Matthew 18, and, and you can't ignore that there's something about church discipline in there, right? We know it as church discipline. That's not what what Matthew 18 named it. It's just, here's what you do when someone sinned against you, and here's how you are reconciled, and if they won't reconcile, here's the steps you are to take. But I renamed that at the time from church discipline to, does anyone remember what I I renamed it? What? Church good stuff. stuff. That's church discipline. Well, Christian life is suffering equals good. Good. That's the part that's hard for us to, you know, wrap our minds around, isn't it? Wait, how can suffering be good? Rejoicing in sufferings means that you walk with Christ as you go through this life. In fact, verse 3 says that we rejoice knowing something. We have learned something. We have found something to be true. We have perceived this something through painful process, and and here's what we know. That suffering produces good things. God-ordained things, gospel things, gospel outcomes. And we've seen what they are. Verse 3 tells us endurance. Suffering builds endurance. You learn to endure only via suffering. It strengthens you. Verse 4 tells us that suffering develops character. That your faith is proved, it is refined through testing. 
like you would refine metals for purity. Verse 4 also tells us that suffering results in hope. Hope is this immovable anchor. It's not like a ship's anchor that has to continually be brought up and put down and all that. This is an, an anchor that is firm and steadfast and is set and will never move. This hope we have in Christ as an anchor for our souls. And then we see in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. Suffering leads to assurance. It leads to assurance. This will be our focus for today. And in this passage, just this one verse, I see three assurances that will steady your soul in suffering. Your soul needs to be steadied and strengthened in suffering. First thing, the assurance that hope will not put you to shame. That hope will not put you to shame. Verse 5 says this to us. Hope does not put us to shame. Does not disappoint us. Literally does not disgrace us. Sin puts us to shame. You know, a lot of people think, you know, I can swim in a sewer and it won't get on me. No, you're not Teflon. You're sinful and you stink. Other people shame us. Just this week, on several news outlets, I couldn't get around this, and I was finding myself kind of getting a little defensive. Uh, The recent U.S. News and World Report study said that California has the worst quality of life in the United States. What they don't know is I get to hang out with you. They don't know what they're talking about. They say we're unfriendly. They say we're disconnected. Of course, everyone's moving to California, but I'm just saying. But we put our hope in things, and then we are disappointed. We are ashamed. We are let down because hope in anything apart from Jesus Christ is futile. It'll fail you. You think of false Christianity, people that are going around saying one thing, and it's not from the Bible. I I was reading just this past week of the 1978 Jonestown massacre where Jim Jones led a bunch of his followers, 900-some followers, down to their deaths in Guyana. Uh, And he was having them drink the Kool-Aid. That's where we get this this phrase. He drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. It's false. It was feeding them lies. And there's false hope. We have false hope. Your, Your good works, how many times can we say this? Your good works will not save you. Hard as you try. Paul was very clear about that in Philippians 3. He's like, you know what? Everything that was to my credit, that was on my you know, spiritual resume outside of Christ is rubbish, literally trash. He's like, take all your trophies and throw them in the trash. They're fleeting. They're temporary. You know, your kids come home from college and they go back to their room and there's all these dusty trophies in there and you're like, Yeah, those aren't as exciting as they were before. The moment of victory or the moment of participation. (laughs) Yeah. That's another sermon. (laughs) The more hope that you put in anything that ultimately fails will shame you. And put to shame here is future tense. Your hope 
will be proven true. It won't let you down. In the day of judgment, your hope in Christ will vindicate you. This is the idea of this verse. It's the same phrase, this hope will not put us to shame. It's the same phrase in chapter 9, verse 33, and chapter 10, verse 11, that no one who believes in the Lord will be put to shame. It's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. You will never be dismayed. And this hope will not shame you is an idea that is rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, you go to Psalm 25, a very Christ-centered psalm, a very suffering servant psalm. I said Psalm 25, I meant Psalm 22. We will look at Psalm 25 as well. But Psalm 22, verse 5. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See, hope and faith are close friends. And without faith you can't have hope. In fact, look at verse 20, Look at Psalm 25. Verses 2 and 3. Here's what David says. Oh my God, if in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. But they shall be ashamed who are treacherous. And then in verse 20 of that same psalm. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Psalm 119, verse 116 says this, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. Your hope will not put you to shame in Christ. You look in the New Testament, go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You look over in chapter 4, verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So your hope not putting you to shame in Romans 5.5 5 is this idea of having boldness in the day of judgment, that your hope in Christ will vindicate you. It's Paul in Philippians 1.20 saying, my earnest expectation, my earnest hope is that in nothing shall I be ashamed. Paul's not taking the walk of shame. Or any who trust in Christ, they won't take the walk of shame. Paul didn't put his trust in something weak. Think of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge built in 1940. It collapsed in the same year. It was called Galloping Gertie. It was like back and forth, back and forth. Finally, it, it fell into the water. But anything not built on Christ won't last. It's going to fail. You have to find this out. You've got to find it out by trial and error. Find it out by, by doing the wrong thing. Is my hope anchored in unchanging truth or is it anchored in sinking sand? We find this out by trusting in false anchors. We have to quit trusting in false anchors. God's steadfast love is your anchor, but we hope in false anchors. We put our hope in people. 
that your most trusted ally cannot save your soul. Your, your most trusted ally cannot be an anchor for your soul. And, and your, your thoughts that you have, like, if I could only do this or that, then I would be good enough. Then I wouldn't feel inadequate anymore. Then I wouldn't feel incomplete anymore. That's going to, to fall down. That's going to fail. That's not going to help you. Because you put your, your hope in something, be it a spouse, a job, a change of circumstance, a better gifting, more of something, and you think that when I get that in my life, then everything will be all right, you're going to end up worshiping that thing. That thing is your idol. All false anchors that we foolishly place hope in are weak. They're faulty. They can't hold you in storms. They can't satisfy you in deserts. They can't break the chains of your sin. What I'm here to tell you today is that God doesn't give false hope. We hope in worthless things. That's our problem. Because we hope in things. Things fail. People fail. People and things can't do God's job. So stop clinging to things. Anchor in, in God alone. David knew this. David knew this. He was the only place that to put his hope was in God. Psalm 42, 11, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him. Psalm 62, verse 5, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. You place your hope for any good thing in God alone. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. It's Hebrews 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, because He who promised is faithful. Everyone and everything under the sun is going to fail you. But God cannot and will not fail. Your hope will not disappoint. But you've got to let that fact, and I think unless and until that fact overrides your feelings, false hope is going to continue to be on the menu for you every day, and you're continually be disappointed, and you're just going to be focused on the temporary, not the eternal. What happens is it's going to keep on drowning in disappointment. You won't sink your trust deep in Christ. But he's the only rock. He's the only anchor for our soul. He's the only one to go to. We've got to let this truth just sink deep into every nook and cranny of our souls. It's like butter on a bagel where you just... It just permeates, and you say, my hope is in God alone. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us we've been born again to a living hope. Our, we don't have a dead hope. We don't have a hope so. We have a no-so hope, and so there is no more shame for the true child of God. Because all God's children will be proven real. Your hope will not put you to shame on the day of judgment. If you bank on the promises of God... 
you won't be put to shame. I love how Paul put it. He says, for this gospel, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Therefore, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. And I know he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. Guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. He's going to guard it until the day. Your hope will be vindicated. So the first thing you see here in verse 5 is the assurance that hope will not put you to shame. The second thing, and it builds upon the first, it's part of the first, assurance that God loves you. Your hope will not be put to shame. Look at verse 5. Your hope does not put you to shame because God's love has been poured out into your heart. It's been poured out. It's been poured into, literally, into your heart. That means that God has personally caused you to personally experience his love. That God has planted proof in your heart as a believer that you belong to him. If you don't don't know Christ, this isn't for you. This is about believers. This is celebrating salvation's benefits. But if you're a believer, you have assurance that God loves you. His love has been poured into your heart. In fact, Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and he says this. He goes, I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It goes beyond our ability to even understand it. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled continually. It's it's like God is filling your heart all the time, pouring into your heart his love. And he's reminding you he loves you. He's reminding you. Even when you're discouraged, even when you're in the midst of failure, God loves you. Jeremiah knew this. Jeremiah knew discouragement. Jeremiah knew failure. And in Lamentations 3, 21 to 22, here's what he says. He says, this I call to mind. I'm remembering something. I'm remembering. So I have hope. I'm remembering this. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. Because of God's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. See, the the satisfaction in Christ is guaranteed. It's no shame. You've got satisfaction. I remember back in the day when I was eating candy bars. I had my quota a long time ago. I don't eat them anymore. But I used to like to eat a good Snicker bar, you know? Good Snicker bar, especially on a hot summer day. Put the Snickers in the freezer, pull it out. What does Snickers do? Snickers satisfies you, right? Wasn't that their, uh, their little tagline, Snickers satisfies? Well, again, I'm here to tell you today, only God satisfies your soul because he loves you. And here's what's going to happen. A lot of people will say, oh, God is going to give me everything I want because he loves me. Oh, no. <laughs> here's how it's going to go. Because God loves you, He's going to dry up every well that you run to that isn't Christ. And he's going to cut the legs out of every idol, off, the, uh, off of every idol in your life. That's what's going to happen because he loves you. Isaiah 55 verse 2 says, Why do you go for what doesn't satisfy? 
But Isaiah 58, 11 says, the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Here's an interesting thing about the word satisfy. It means to, to give much more than is needed and keep giving. You have more than enough. And, and God pours his love into your heart. Jeremiah 31, 25, he says, I satisfy the weary ones. Are you weary today? God satisfies you with his love. He fills you with his love. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Romans 8 tells us that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Not suffering, for sure. And so first you have assurance of hope that it, it will not put you to shame and assurance that God loves you. He loves you. And the third part here is that you have assurance that you have the Holy Spirit as a believer. And look at the verse again, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the love of God is being poured into our hearts and has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us. This is the testimony of God's love for us. The Holy Spirit fills believers with the love of God. It's through the Holy Spirit. This is assurance that God loves you. This is assurance that you'll be spared from the wrath of God because you experience God's love through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards said, the Holy Spirit communicates God's love to us. Do you notice that that verse says the Holy Spirit was given to us? This is in the context of being justified by faith. There are believers who will tell you, well, when you come to faith in Christ, you've got Jesus and the Father, but you need to wait to get the Holy Spirit another time when you get spiritual enough or good enough or have enough faith. In fact, how many people will say, you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith? What happened to Job then? What happened to Paul then? The Holy Spirit was given to us at conversion when you're justified by faith, that once-for-all declaration, and then you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the moment of conversion. And the Spirit is active. The Holy Spirit is active, and the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit isn't on demand. God is not on demand. You don't just press a button and say, I want that. You, the Holy Spirit is given what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is convicting the world. John 16 says, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. They're like, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. He's like, no, I'm going to the cross. And it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Holy Spirit gives truth, and the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Again, in, in John 16, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
And he will declare to you the things that are to come, and he will glorify me. Jesus said, the Spirit will glorify me. And the Spirit was promised. The Spirit was promised and poured out by Jesus. The promise of Joel chapter 2 that we see brought on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, says, In the last days, declares God, I will pour out my Spirit. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Then you go down to Acts 2.33, and it says, Being exalted at the right hand of God. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus exalted at the right hand of the throne of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, a very Trinitarian verse right here. Jesus being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourself see and hear. And the Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians 1.14 says that in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him at the point of conversion, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see that? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is guarantee of our inheritance. The Spirit is our helper. Our helper. In John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. And then he says, I will ask the Father. And here's another Trinitarian verse. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. Even the Spirit of truth. And you know him, he says. He will dwell with you and will be in you. And this Holy Spirit that was given you in Christ gives you assurance. Gives you assurance. Look with me over at Romans chapter 8. You know, everyone loves Romans 8. I love Romans 8. But I love Romans 5, 1 through 11. And Romans 5, 1 through 11 has a lot of parallels into Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit assures you and then it goes on and says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And there you have assurance in the midst of discouragement. Knowing the pain of life brings this passage to life for me. I ought to bring it to life for you. It's interesting, in the midst of your sufferings, you don't know what perseverance and proven character God is working into you. You just know that God's love has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit that was given to you. And you have the Holy Spirit, the comforter, actively comforting you. God is so good. His timing is impeccable, isn't it? In his providence, he brings good. He bears fruit 
on barren-looking trees. He, he grows you when you feel dead and lifeless. By His Spirit, He surprises you. When, when your life just narrows in and, and the way gets really dark and cloudy and confused and you don't know which way end is up and, and you're frustrated and you're discouraged. And then there are these moments that the Spirit of God ministers to your heart and you know that you didn't get yourself that, that comfort and, and He's carrying your burden and, and He's given you this overwhelming sense of peace. And, and you say, all is well. And you're like, where'd that come from? It came from the Spirit of God. You didn't get yourself there. It was brought to you by the indwelling Spirit of God, the Comforter, your Comforter, your Counselor, which is just so much reason to rejoice. I love how personal Paul is getting with us here, that suffering leads to this indisputable hope that sees and savors God's goodness and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You see, rejoicing in suffering doesn't mean you're going around high-fiving everyone and jumping for joy when you're suffering. Rejoicing in suffering is an internal rejoicing where you say, wow, I've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Wow, I am chosen in Christ." And this is now my life. And, and as I struggle through this life, God assures me that I am loved by him and I have the Holy Spirit. You see, when you treasure Christ above all, you know what happens? You get super abundant comfort in Christ. It's better than a warm blanket on a chilly night. It's better than a child lying in its mother's arms. It's, it's better than those warm towels at the barbecue place. Why do they lose their heat so quickly? I was at a barbecue place the other day, and I'm like, can I have another? And yes, they brought me another. I was on a long plane flight, and we went to Cyprus recently, right? And uh, I asked for more towels on, those, on that one, too. They bring you the towel. They bring you the, after, you know, 25 hours of flying or whatever, they're like, here, have a warm towel. I'm like, oh, this is so wonderful. Can I have more? But here's the deal. Your comfort in Christ is super abundant and never loses the heat never loses the power doesn't dissipate I love 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction don't you love that and you know what you find as you walk with Christ, you find that you can comfort other people. And you find that, that the next verse is true. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted in Christ. And you find something out. You're like, it isn't just that I suffered and, you know, 20 years later, I was able to help someone because I had suffered that, which is true. But you find out that actually in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your pain, you can actually comfort others and help others as they suffer. We suffer together. This is the heart of biblical counseling. This is the heart of coming alongside a fellow brother or sister with comfort and pointing them to hope in Christ where you meditate on the goodness of God as you suffer through this life. 
and, and you talk with each other and you proclaim the gospel to each other and you visit and, and you write or you testify and you pray and you say, wow, I am loved so much, so I'm able to love. And, and I'm, I'm comforted so much, I'm able to comfort. It only comes from God. Because we learn obedience through the things we suffer. And then we continue to learn. We're like, I'm good. And God's like, not yet. <laughs> Life's not a vacation continually. It is a process of joys and challenges and sorrows. And th that's why. Okay, you know how we talk about you got to get in the word and prayer? This is why you need to be praying and reading the word of God every day. You suffer every day. And you don't need to do it just alone. You need to do it alone, but not just alone. You're not suffering all by yourself in a vacuum where you're the only person on earth. So that's why households and couples and friends need to read the Bible and pray together. And focus your hope on Christ as you suffer through this life. So all of our suffering, all of our life suffering is in light of heaven. It's in light of heaven. Suffering is what bridges present grace with future glory. 2 Corinthians, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Before we close, let me read this to you. You think about it. This is not just as simple as, well, I suffer now and then one day I'll have glory, you know, and life is just miserable. No. Suffering... And glory, there's this process going on between the two where we're being changed from the inside out by God. And God is daily working to change you and preparing you for glory and comforting you in Christ. So, so listen to this. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Drop down to verse 16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this momentary slight affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're forever. And that is why when you're suffering, it is good to focus on Jesus. And on the cross, you focus on the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in your place and endured the greatest suffering so you could enjoy him forever. Here's Jesus, fully God, fully man, knew our condition perfectly and sympathized with us and came to earth crossbound to intervene and act on our behalf because we couldn't. And Jesus, Hebrews tells us, learned obedience through what he suffered. Someone said it this way, Jesus fulfilled everything the Father willed in making him the Savior for sinners. We fall in sin. Someone must offer themselves as the sacrifice for our sin. So when we trust him, 
His perfect obedience is counted as our perfect obedience. His victory, our victory. God put Jesus through the suffering of the cross to accomplish obedience for us, for his eternal glory. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, took our suffering so that we could be with him in glory. And Jesus, he fulfills every good, gracious, God-ordained purpose in suffering. And one day, no more suffering. No more sadness, no more pain, no more tears. The former things will pass away. And until that day, we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the things And Lord, we thank you that you give us a joy that the world could not know. Peace that the world could not know. Hope and love that the world does not know. Thank you, Lord, that our suffering is significant because you're using it to grow us more like Christ. And thank you, Lord, that you assure us through suffering so that we would put our hope in you. Thank you for your promises that you are always with us, that you will never leave us, that that your loving purpose is our transformation and that you keep proving your love to us to the end of our life. Thank you that you never fail. And we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.